for a lot of the things I look at is, is not necessarily just looking at the different interaction styles we should choose, but also making sure the boundaries of the services we choose make sense from a more of a business perspective and not just from an informational perspective. Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm your host, Paul, and joined with me today is Jimmy Bogard. So Jimmy is a consultant, creator, some things he's made, um, automapper and mediator. And am I saying that right, Jimmy? Mediate? I don't. I, spelled, I don't know. It's close enough. Well, it's spelled M-E-D-I-A-T-R for people listening. <laughs> you want to go search it up on his GitHub. And we're going to be getting into, you know, talking about platform choreography, orchestration, how microservices talk, and, you know, focusing on your talk that you gave at the DevTernity conference, effective microservice communication and conversation platforms. Welcome to the podcast, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get into this topic because everybody deals with this, like microservice communication. Yeah. Everybody. I, I, don't, I don't care what level of the stack you work on unless you have some weird, amazing job that I'm jealous of. Like, you have to think about services. Yeah, exactly. None of us really want to deal with it, but it's there now, I guess. Did you step into being a consultant specifically in this like microservice realm? Or is this kind of just how the cookie crumbled over the years? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I My career started out in like a you know, startup area. Then I went to a product company. I hated both of those things. And then in my first gig of like big corporate IT, that was my first kind of foray into like, I'm not just dealing with a single app and a single database. Now I have to deal with like other people's systems and other people's databases. And that's where my first kind of introduction into uh, distributed systems was, was, you know, big corporate IT and how things can kind of work, how things <laughs> cannot work as well. But uh, corporate IT wasn't for me. So I got into consulting to, uh, to try to escape that world. Step into consulting back into the corporate IT world, just on your own terms, or did you uh, maybe reel it in a little bit and start small again, single systems? Yeah, it was actually it was like six months later, I was consulting back at the exact same company I just left. <laughs> Go figure. Wow. Then I could leave wherever I wanted. I wasn't you know, stuck at a you know, desk job there or whatever, cube farm. That's like a, a, a life graduation moment. You come back six months later, bigger, shinier, newer. Happier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So one of the, one of the big things you're talking about with distributed systems, uh, making them coordinate. How do they talk to each other? I mean, if you if you have one system talking to another, you get failures and side effects. Yeah, exactly. Um, my my first kind of introduction to even the idea of like there are different patterns you apply and different this idea of you know, different ways that systems can communicate came from going back to that company who were going through this big like we're we're rewriting the monolith in microservices and it's going to be this this utopia and everything's going to be so great because it's small deployable whatever. Um, and it was just a, a complete failure, like just a, a huge, massive disaster. And based on my experiences, I, I realized a lot of it came back to them not really picking the right communication patterns for the different kinds of use cases they were hitting. They had just basically picked, we're going to do this one single communication pattern for everything. And at the time, that was, you know, everybody did every, you know, APIs for everything, I guess it was the, um, Jeff Bezos has that had that famous uh, memo he sent out that's like, Ever, we're going to build services and everything's going to have an API. Well, they took that to the extreme, like everything is going to be this synchronous web API. And that led to a lot of uh, a lot of problems when they went to production because they picked, they decided like this one single way that all of our services are going to interact is this one single way of synchronous APIs. Do you think that this kind of illustrates a common pitfall of 
how engineers specifically think about architecting a system where it's sort of like if you can in an ideal utopian world in your head invent a standard communication that everything falls under it feels really great but often it's not is that common is is that like why you find people and teams falling into that position yeah because it's i mean it's easier if you just pick one way you don't have to deal with how to deal with the other ways of doing things and i've also found that especially kind of early on in the microservice you know people doing these kind of architectures they really centered around a single style of integration and communication, which is this API style. It's, it's just a very common, easy way of doing things. And, but what, what, I, what I tended to find was that those kinds of communications do have trade-offs versus other, other ways of communicating. And unless we're really paying attention to those trade-offs and understanding the kind of limitations of each of those, then when we get to production or any kind of other you know, really distributed environment, those don't work. And when I talked to the team, it was it was that that had failed. I I didn't understand like how they got so far with something that just was never going to work. And it because it was because everything worked great on their local machine because everything was local. They didn't have to cross network boundaries or servers or you know racks or anything like that. So everything was everything was great. This is in which an environment where things were actually distributed physically. Then they started to see like just all these different slowdowns uh, magnify and multiply across uh, their applications. What's an example of a slowdown that I wouldn't see on my local host? And if I'm developing, let's say, a three-service thing, I'm, I know there's unlimited, but I'm just trying to think of one that would crop up that's common. Yeah. So the 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 big thing that you don't see locally is just the latency between services. You're not crossing a network boundary. You're not crossing. You know. You're not crossing your your laptop. Uh, everything just stays local. So latency between services is effectively zero. Even if I'm running, you know, a hundred services locally, it's going to be pretty fast and, and I won't, I won't see any issues. But as soon as you start to introduce that latency between different services and, and as you multiply out the number of services that you're calling, suddenly that latency becomes a huge, huge problem. And in this case, we saw that, you know, like locally, they had something like a hundred, 150 services for some one page they were looking at. But as soon as they multiply that out by, you know, it's like 10 to 20 milliseconds per call. But then this one was calling that service and that service calling that service. Suddenly it just multiplied out to like, oh gosh, it was so bad. It was, I think, nine minutes it took to get a single response when they finally got to production. And it was just because of the multiplication effect that when you multiply out that latency between calls, uh, suddenly you're going to have this really long effect. Correct me if I'm wrong on this like intuition, but one reason why that can catch so many people by surprise is like you get you get this thought of like okay well I'm running services like it's just a, a, a like it's just a little laptop like whatever and but the difference of a multiplier between a between a value of zero and 1.2 seconds is, is profound when when as you say as you scale it out mm-hmm. there's this misconception about like how much of a difference that minutia takes of a local versus like in production between networks crossing netro- network boundaries and it's not completely obvious to you as a developer that if you're calling one api is that api having to call other apis and are those apis having to call other apis if you're developing you know developing locally you don't necessarily see that you could even trigger a denial of service attack internally we also saw that that there was something that caused a big explosion of API calls that again locally you would just never see, but suddenly in on a when I'm talking about actual network connections, 
we're starving the the sockets. We can't actually make connections, and we're causing these internal denial service attacks. It's just none of those things you see when you're when you're running everything locally. And these were these were all the well documented things to look out for. There's this list of the fallacies of distributed computing that predates microservices and service-oriented architecture that says these are things that when you're developing locally, you you assume to be true. And one of them is latency is zero. And when you're developing locally, latency is effectively zero. But as soon as you get somewhere else, then that starts to multiply out. What is one way that you would advise a individual or a team to start thinking about re-architecting something if they're starting from this classic position of I have a bunch of things that are talking to other things over HTTP? One of the, the kind of the big challenges there is as we're defining the different communication between these different services, someone has to define, well, what in the world should these services be? And one of the things we saw with this initial organization I was working with is they didn't really have any guidance about where they should draw the boundaries for these different APIs. It was almost like if they saw a, a, a database table, they're like, well, they'll just have a service for that database table because we need a, I don't know, we need an order service and a product service. And what they didn't necessarily realize is that that didn't, from the usage perspective of that information, it didn't necessarily map out very well that if I just create an API around that entire set of information, that could lead to some very chatty uh, back and forth because some things need that information at different times, different places. That was one of the things we ran into with a the denial of service attack. Um, there's this common problem of using ORMs that you can you can have this what's known as a select n plus one problem, where instead of using a database join, you're calling back and forth to the database multiple times to get the data. Well, what they were doing that was that exact thing except in APIs. So they were calling the API to get the order and then calling the product service for the product details for every single thing in the order. And then it realized like, oh, this can work really great locally, but that's not going to really, it didn't work at the database level and it's not going to work out when we're building APIs as well. So for a lot of the things I, I look at is, is not necessarily just looking at the different interaction styles we should choose, but also making sure those the boundaries of the services we choose make sense from a more of a business perspective and not just from an informational perspective. So you see a lot of a lot of talk in the microservice community up front about, well, what should these microservices be? And if we can align those service boundaries with kind of business domains or business concerns, even like if we look at the organizational structure of the business, like if the business has already decided that this is a good way to organize our capabilities and our people, that also is a good starting point to say, then perhaps the ownership of that information and those capabilities and the APIs should also be aligned to those groups as well. So that kind of gets back to this idea of Conway's law, which has been bastardized over the years, but in general, we we can design or the design of information systems often aligns to the communication patterns of the business. And today that roughly means the organizational structure of the business also aligns to the like the systems that they build as well. So when we look at designing those service boundaries, we want to make sure that the communication patterns are appropriate and make sense. I first look to see, well, how does the business organize themselves? And if the business has already organized themselves in a logical manner, then that's a good starting point for that. Out of there in terms of the interaction models, um, a lot of those will just kind of naturally fall in place to how the business expects those communication models to work. When you're looking at uh, optimizing this, it sounds like it's very much at like an application logic level. It, we're not 
asking the question, do we use this underlying protocol or that underlying protocol like TCP, UDP, which might come up in, in the design conversation. But first and foremost, it's this common misconception about like architecting your microservices wrong or, or over-architecting it or over-segmenting it or, or just not drawing those lines in the correct location. That's the first place that you typically want to tackle. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the hard thing to get right. And it's also a hard thing to fix after the fact. So I, I tend to spend a bit more time up front just understanding the, you know, how the businesses organize themselves, the maturity of the different areas of the business as well. I see an area that's a little less refined, or maybe they haven't standardized their processes or standardized you know, how, they just, how they decide to organize themselves. And it doesn't make sense to invest a lot of time building these well-crafted services when they might you know, they might change their mind in two months and say, actually, no, we don't want to do business like that or do this process like that. Just do something else. If I'm able to start with those more um, kind of mature areas of the business, I tend to find that the APIs out of there, and I'm not not just like web APIs, but any kind of contracts and, and means of exposing information and capabilities tend to be a lot better aligned and better able to uh, be exposed to other areas of the business. When it comes time to like choosing the nature of those communications, I I do often go back to understanding, well, how, if I were to rewind time 50 years ago, what were the nature of the communications back then? How would they have accomplished these different tasks? How would they have accomplished these different workflows and things like that? And I tend to find us as humans are halfway decent about optimizing your communications based on the different like needs we have around the communication. So if I have something urgent and I need to get an answer immediately, I will choose that synchronous form of communication to say, I need to get this answer right away. So I will call someone or you know, some sort of synchronous communication to ask that question. But if it's not something I need an answer right away, then I'll choose um, an asynchronous form of communication. You know, I'll email or text or Slack, something that I don't expect to have that immediate answer. And if I rewound time 50 years ago, we tend to find that there's a lot of synchronous communication inside of an organizational boundary, and it's a lot less synchronous between organizational boundaries. So if I need, I'm in accounting and I need to have something done by invoicing, 50 years ago, I might have filled out a form or sent an interoffice mail to them. And then like a day later, I get an answer back. But I've optimized my workflow to understand that there's going to be a bit of delay with the trade-off that I can send a mail off and then I can keep going on with my life and not have to wait for that other person to get an answer back to me. If we translate that into this idea that everything is an API, that'd be equivalent to if I need to get anything done at, a, at, at work, I would have to get everybody on some synchronous call to be able to get this answer, which is meetings, right? <laughs> so if we want, if we're trying to answer a question of like, I need to place an order, and have to get everybody on the phone to answer the question, can this person place an order? Well, that's going to be a very expensive call, very expensive meeting to have. And it's going to be a very expensive uh, request in my system as well if everything to answer that question is synchronous. One thing I love about this example is it's really, it, I, I think this kind of gives me a rule of thumb. And I love rules of thumbs because they're things that I can take away from this conversation we're having. 
and use it as a tool in my toolbox later as I'm working on my systems and stuff. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I bring myself back to like thinking of how a human organization would organize in your examples. You're like, well, 50 years ago, how would it have been done? If I view each one of my services as a little department, I'm picturing like little humans working in there. Where would they end up like wasting my time being paying them and doing something? Thinking how a, biz- a human uh, organization would interact, I think brings to the forefront of my mind some of these areas that APIs and services might break down in their efficiency. Um, it humanizes it. For me, it's a good, uh, at least a very good starting point. Metaphors are, are good to a point, but they break down at some point. But at least brings it to the forefront and and humanizes the real world uh, limitations of communications that we have every day. If I'm talking about synchronous communication and a system that's API calls, whether it's gRPC or, or HTTP, it's uh, one system makes a call to another system and, and is waiting for that other system to return a response before it continues its execution. Well, that's the same thing as me talking to you today. We're both sitting here blocked, not doing anything else, right? Um, and we're not, and as we're going back and forth, neither of us is doing anything else. We're waiting for the other response to come back. And you see, you do see this in like in in your daily interactions with other businesses. Um, one famous example is Starbucks. Um, there's this famous paper of your your coffee shop doesn't use two phase commits, and it's this idea that not everything in the world is a synchronous interaction, but there are some synchronous ones and some asynchronous ones. And so when you go to a coffee shop. You make that initial synchronous interaction of placing your order, but once that initial interaction is complete, the processing of that order is asynchronous to you. So you go mill around over there in the milling around area next to the counter, and then behind the scenes, there are these asynchronous operations that are happening to fulfill your order. You're okay with that because you know eventually you will get your coffee or you'll complain and leave a bad review. Um, but it allows you to have a mix of this synchronous interaction where it's highly efficient to get your order and pay for your coffee, but then allows the fulfillment of that order to then be optimized for that process. So I can have like multiple baristas fulfilling different kinds of orders. There's a frappuccino person because that blender's super annoying. Someone just working the espresso machine. Like they can optimize these individual tasks behind the scenes for you. And it just comes a bit of a, of a, a an understanding of you as a customer that Although you're now asynchronous to fulfill the order, which means like I don't now get my coffee when I'm pay, I get it sometime in the future. So there's some agreement between us and like, well, it's not, I'm not getting it now. It's in the future sometime, but the line goes faster and they'll make more money. And so I see this in our, our distributed systems as well, that I, I've seen people go the other way, like, oh, API sucked. So we're going to do everything via messaging. Everything's going to be on Kafka or RabbitMQ. Well, I, I mean... You could do that, but then now every single interaction has to wait some indeterminate time in the future for a response. You're bound to a, a memory tied application that is not inherently like stateful. You know, if that goes down, what happens to your brain? You have a whole other side of, set of side effects to manage that piece of infrastructure. Going back to the design of these distributed systems, that's what I look at. I look at each of these interactions and then try. I first start from the metaphor of like, well, what if these are people performing this job? How would they do these interactions? Would they, would they, would they have a synchronous interaction? Does it make the most sense there? And a lot of times it comes to if I'm asking a question, I expect an immediate response. So the queries in my system, I've asked you a question. That should be a very easy thing for you to do to give me a response to, to answer my question. Um, or if you have this like, in the case of placing an order, you're not doing any big lifting or heavy lifting to take someone's order. The most you're doing is just like writing it down and taking the money. 
and that's it. All the processing is behind the scenes. And so they look at, okay, from, from then on out, well, then how do we then coordinate these activities behind the scenes? Do we, do we use synchronous communication? Now we have to worry about both sides being up and available. Just like in real life, if I'm telling someone to do something and they're busy, well, then I have to ask them again. And I have to ask them again, ask them again in case they're, they're still busy. Uh, versus durable, I have more guarantees, but I'm now disconnected of like, well, I don't know when they'll get this order or when this, they'll get this request, but it's sometime in the future. So that's good enough for me. So I look at each of those interactions and try to figure out like what, what makes the most sense for these two system services, as well as what makes the most sense for the overall business transaction I'm trying to achieve, which is getting my coffee at the end. It feels to me as if it's a lack of perspective, a lack of point of view. As a system architect, you your point of view needs to remain homogenous throughout each piece as you walk through and you're determining, is this synchronous, is it asynchronous, is it durable, is it not? From what I heard from you is you first think about the customer. You put yourself in the mind of the customer. I'm getting my coffee. What does this top level point of view look like? Once that's established, you have your synchronous bubbles, your asynchronous bubbles. Then you can like go into each one. And I mean, if I'm designing a, a microservices for my own little app, I run into this problem. If I'm coding at 10 a.m. and then at 10 p.m. that same day, my point of view about who is my main constituent in the system is different. It, it's difficult to maintain that. One interesting framework I'd love to get your thoughts on that I think sort of like has a heavy-handed approach to forcing my point of view. That's like you're gonna. This is gonna be your top level. Like this is a workflow. Temporal I.O. I'm sure you've heard of it. If you're the microservice man, I think it's a really interesting answer to this problem of like, here's your point of view. You have a workflow object. Now we're going to proxy activities out. What's your experience in the enterprise world working temporal? What are your thoughts? Are you a yayer or a nayer? I haven't had the, the privilege of using temporal I.O. I've used systems like it, though, in the past. Some of those come down to um, how much are you willing to have sort of centralized orchestration of some processes where you versus you want to have those a little bit more distributed or less coupled to some kind of central system. And the other thing I, I kind of hit is not a lot of the customers I work with are equally mature in all the systems that would connect to those kinds of workflow activities. And so we have to drop down to a little bit more, I guess, less heavy handed approach because they're just not able to, to, to be able to say, well, for this one spot, like, well, we're still this their fulfillment engine is like SAP or something. So like that thing's not going to talk to Portal IO. So we'll, we got to, we got to figure something else out um, for those pieces over there. There's also a tendency to try to, in even, even in looking at asynchronous messaging to also just say, we're going to have one single interaction style between different services to say, okay, if you're going to go messaging, then only do events between different services because that has a higher level of de- process decoupling that I'm not telling services what to do. I'm instead just telling them what happened with me and then they can decide how they want to manage it on their own side. But again, what I found is that there's still no hard and fast rule to say, always use events or always use command messages. It is always coming back to, you know, what are the, what is that overall workflow I'm trying to achieve and what is the most appropriate interaction style for these for these sets of interactions? Is it does it make them more sense to use events, or is it the case where I, I do need to tell the system to do something, and I don't want them to care about me at all? I need to tell them what to do because if they were to 
learn if they were to do events, then they would have to learn about the thing that's on my side. I don't want them to care about me. I just want to be able to tell them what to do. And it is always that sort of push and pull tug of war to say what what makes the most sense there. I, I like your answer because I think it just sheds light on the very fundamental fact that temporal doesn't solve everything. It's new. It works so well for a lot of people. And we hear great success stories like Uber. All of Uber runs on temporal. If you're listening, you don't know what it is. All of Uber runs on this framework. It's a beast. It's a, it, and, it, and it does this orchestration stuff, but it doesn't solve everything. Talking to SAP, yeah, like how are you going to get that integrated into, into the, the TypeScript runtime? I, it has other languages, of course, but you know, and, and I think it has something to be said, like this is a, this is beyond like your typical, I wrote a bunch of next, apps and, and, and TypeScript services that are trying to communicate. Like there are legacy systems, legacy pieces of hardware even that have different push and pull models. When you're going out into a client and you're like, okay, let's tackle this. Let's look at slowness. What is your step one of indexing and discovering like the topology? Because stepping into like, if you're going into an org and you're taking over an org, like that's a disaster as it is. You're like, what team does what? And that takes you two weeks to answer. So do you write it down? Do you have a notebook? Well, how does that work? I guess pre-COVID days, it was like get in a get in a room with the whiteboards and stuff. But uh, my like my virtual whiteboard skills were still like heavily heavily lacking. We're still trying to get better at that. I mean, a lot of times the customers I work with don't even have like distributed tracing for me even to have like I can't have the system tell me what's going on. So sometimes what we'll do is even add instrumentation to the system so that we could you know prove what they tell us is actually true that this is how things actually flow through the system. A lot of it starts out with talking, um, is doing those kind of levels of interviews and cataloging of the different systems that make up whatever uh, applications they have. So getting with the uh, dev managers or C-levels that have a a high-level understanding of how things are put together and then uh, going down from there. Oftentimes, though, I'm not trying to get like... I'm not trying to draw the like most detailed map of Europe. I'm just like, okay, let me draw the country boundaries. And then if I want to zoom in on something, then I'll, I'll zoom in on that. But it's, it's not often important to get like the most detailed map of the whole thing. Like we'll just get the 10,000 foot view. And then if we see problem areas, we'll start to drill into those specific areas of concern. There's a whole new like software startups coming out right now that are, they're literally, their whole thing is just based on like mapping your AWS environment. Cause it's such a, behemoth of a task to and it changes and that's the problem you spend time and resources doing it and then it changes that's why i tr- as much as possible we try to get some sort of instrumentation in so that the system tells us wh- how things are put together um, and we're not having like oh wait there's this one config value for this url where is that being called oh it's over here that's calling for this okay and reverse engineering that by going through source code is unless i'm getting paid by the hour it's not very fun <laughs> Yeah. I think it's an interesting job too, because you're basically a software engineer, but it's just like, what do you do? Well, it changes every time. It changes every time, but it's up the same domain. It just changes every time because I don't know what system I'm going to be touching. My last question when when you're stepping into an, an organization, sort of like in your career oriented question, do you find that the source of difficulties when it comes to either the existing architecture or current being planned architecture is the source of that difficulty like often groupthink, where people are having an offhanded approach and they're just kind of like moving forward blindly and slowly as a as a mass and it's yielding inefficient designs or is it more like you have like one leader who's very much like oh, i have this idea we're gonna make it great 
and people sign on and then it ends up having a lack of checks and balances because I feel like those are two very different entry points of disaster. Yeah, I'd say like in terms of things going off the rails, um, which again, as a consultant, I never bought in for like systems that already work. So I only get to see the systems that don't work. Um, but in those cases, I'd say most of the time it is like that one champion that has achieved some level of either, you know, they made it up the org chart very high or they've achieved some level of success where they've been now put in a position. Okay, now you're going to be one designing this, this new system. But they might not have any of the experience in designing those systems, so they're also learning as they go. Um, so it, it's not necessarily like any negative intentions or even even necessarily checks and balances. A lot of times, it's, it's a lack of feedback into are these designs do these designs actually work? Is this appropriate? Um, so that's one of the things I I do try to put in and, and do and, and you know as we're trying to do something different is let's not try to start you know 50 at once because we won't have any feedback it'll just be a too much feedback to understand is this right let's let's start small and prove that approach and then grow it out a little bit more um, there's a there's a desire to like scale the approach too quickly before we've really had a, a chance to let those ideas bake and and take hold and understand where are the limitations where they're not the limitations that was kind of my guess too so it's interesting to hear it's not inherently a malignant action. It, it's maybe like overtrust, lack of experience, and or some combination of the two that you know people just blindly kind of move forward with something. I wouldn't say it's always like never malignant. So <laughs> one of the things I, I one of the things I do do when I when I talk to my to teams is I I also try to understand like what is their compensation structure, like what are they given, what are they rewarded for, what are they punished for. Um, because I've had teams, like one example was, uh, organization had like way too many microservices. I'm like, like people raised the flag and said, this is, we got too many, this is going the wrong direction. But it turns out in that organization, you got promotions by like how many services you owned, the more services you define and own, the more you got in your bonus. And so there was a negative, an, 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 a negative, how would you call that? A, <laughs> Bad incentives. Yeah. They were financially incentivized to do the wrong thing. Um, so that is one thing I tried to understand going in is like, uh, I could make suggestions on changes, but if they're not financially motivated to do so, it's probably going to not go well. People will make their own choices based on you know their own selfish reasons. So I want to understand what are those extrinsic motivators that they have going on in the organizations. And that also gives me a, an understanding to like how things got to where they are. It's funny how these sorts of problems fizzle out uh, not completely but a lot when we step into the open source realm and i think that speaks a lot for the quality of the software that gets developed there and boy do we have so many episodes on that like riffing on open source that's a topic for another time but i just the incentives that's an interesting um like example you brought up it, it just feels unique that wow you get bonuses based on the microservices and that caused like an actual like technical cost in the end well jimmy before we close out if people wanted to learn more about like what you do, I know you have a website. What is the website name? It's really complicated. Just jimmybogard.com. <laughs> God, nobody's going to remember that one. <laughs> and then um, you're on LinkedIn, you're on GitHub. Twitter, I guess, for now. I don't know. For now. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for taking your time to come on. It was, it was really great to pick your brain about like how microservices are done wrong. In, in, in some ways that we might want to think about in problem areas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. <laughs>